Thanks for tuning in. I'm Steve Playford from Link Group, and I am taking over today's podcast. Social mobility is a hot topic, especially at board level. This morning, I had the pleasure of welcoming three guests to our offices in London to discuss this and more. The event was part of our head program for corporate governance professionals. It's a regular series of in-person events. So if you'd like to find out more and get involved, I'll leave a link in the description. I'm now going to hit play so you can listen back to the session. I hope you enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the third ahead event of the year. Um, towards the end, we'll probably tell you the uh, next upcoming event. But today, our focus for the event is on social diversity. And uh, we're going to begin with um, a panel of us uh, of specialist expert and experience. But the focus on social diversity. So a lot has been discussed around board diversity over the past number of years, especially around gender and ethnicity, about ensuring that the boards avoid groupthink by bringing through people with different social backgrounds. Should organizations be considering clearer policies to change the dynamic of their boards to include a wider range of social class? According to the OECD, UK has one of the lowest rates of social mobility in the world, yet 84% of UK boards have no data or mechanisms to measure social diversity at the top level. This is the traditional British class system, established glass ceilings in PLCs for people from lower social economic groupings. This session is set out to discuss the barriers to social mobility within organizations and how they might be overcome in the future to ensure that leadership represents a wider base of society and not the traditional elite. For me, this topic of social diversity is very <clears throat> key to, my, to, how, to where I come from. And I just wanted to share from a social perspective, I came here to the UK as an, a refugee. I've been given opportunities and I'm here where I am. I lead the company matters business as the MD. I'm a qualified company secretary and I was a company secretary of FTSE 250. But not a lot of, there's a still a large proportion of people with my background, ethnicity and social, um, does not get this opportunity. I am stepping up as a role model that we can achieve and we can be just as successful. I'd like to hand you over to our panel, who, which will be moderated by my colleague, one of my senior manager, Steve Playford, and he's going to introduce his special guest. And look, and another best special guest has just turned up. <laughs> so while, while we get um, Suzanne mic'd up, maybe I'll just give a little bit of bi uh, a biog until our, our special guest here. We're joined by Anne Frank, OBE, Chief Executive of the Chartered Management Institute. In addition to her role at the CMI in a various non-executive director position, Anne sits on the Employer Advisor Group of the Social Mobility Commission, set up to drive social mobility in the workplace. In the 2020 New Year's Honours list, she was awarded an OBE for services to workplace ethnicity. Welcome, Anne. And next to Anne is Ruth Odie. Ruth is Assistant Company Secretary at Centrica PLC. 
As well as being a key member of the Secretariat team at Centrica, Ruth is a faculty member of the CGI. Her governance experiences range from multinational to large FTSEs and aimless organisation. Ruth is a member of the Tackling Inclusion and Diversity in Energy Task Force uh, at Centrica and has joined this uh, previous panel to talk about the importance of social mobility in the workplace. And next to Ruth, we have Suzanne Courtney, Associate Partner at Aon. Welcome, Suzanne. Glad you're here. Uh, <laughs> so, in addition to um, Suzanne, is a recognized occupational psychology consultant who holds a doctorate in industrial and organization psychology and is a strategic growth director at Aon. Susanna is a major advocate of diversity in the workplace and speaks passionately on the importance of inclusivity of, for all. So I'm going to hand it, hand it over. I think I've been here long enough, Steve, so I'm going to hand it over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Cathy. That's great. And uh, just want to echo Cathy's uh, comments on welcoming the panel today. Um, I'm really pleased Suzanne got there just in time. Fantastic. Uh, brilliant. But lovely to have you here. Thank you. And uh, I've been very lucky to uh, know Anne for a long time, actually, um, from my previous work when I was at the FT. Uh, so it's great to have you here today. And it's also been fantastic and very refreshing um, to meet Suzanne and, and Ruth. So I hope that you enjoy listening to them today. Um, so I'm going to give them, I'm going to hand it all over to them because they're the experts and uh, going to ask if you could uh, maybe just give a, a sort of three, four minute introduction to the kind of work that you guys are doing uh, through your organisations, but also personally. So I'm going to start with Anne because she's nearest to me and then Suzanne can relax and get ready and then, uh, yep, that'd be fantastic. Thank you. Thank you and good morning, everybody. So um, I'm the chief executive of the Chartered Management Institute. We have been around for 75 years. Um, we're the professional body for management and leadership. Um, we're the only ones that award chartered manager, and we also award chartered management consultant. And what we do is create and assess and accredit standards for professional managers and leaders. Now, what I like to say is our mission is that we take accidental managers and turn them into confident, competent, and inclusive leaders. Now, that's an incredibly important mission uh, because let me share some pretty stark statistics. In the UK, we have 8 million managers. About 80% of those people are accidental managers. What's an accidental manager, you ask? Well, that's somebody who excels. Perhaps they're an outstanding business development person or a finance person or IT person. And they excel functionally in their job. And then one day, somebody taps them on the shoulder and says, you're in charge. You run the team. You're promoted. Good luck with that. And they don't give them any training in how to manage themselves, how to manage teams, how to manage resources. And they are really left to sink or swim. And a lot of them sink. Um, actually. Poor leadership and management is the number one reason why the UK is less productive than its OECD neighbors. And experts reckon it counts for about half the productivity gap between the UK and other countries. So this is an incredibly important topic. Now at CMI, we know, as long, along with the rest of the world, that driving up diversity and inclusion isn't just the right thing to do, although clearly it is, but it drives business results. 
Um, and we do a lot of work to demonstrate this. And our latest piece of work, which I encourage you all to download, I'll be referring to it in my remarks, is the Everyone Economy. It's free. You can download it off our website. And it's a 75th anniversary um, publication we did with a, a, a raft of advisors. We did a lot of research. And one of the things that's highlighted, which I want to mention, is those 8 million managers I mentioned do not reflect British uh, working population. So if we really wanted the diversity of leadership and management to reflect the diversity of the workforce, we are missing almost 1.5 million managers. And that's looking across women, ethnicity, socioeconomic diversity, age, sexuality, um, and uh, disability. So we are not a diverse and inclusive set of leaders and managers. And we do need to address that because we will get more productive, we will stimulate more growth, and we will reduce the risk of reputational implosions, and we've had quite a number of those. And I'll close um, in saying that one of the biggest things we need to do, um, and this is hard, but it's essential, is close what we call the say-do gap. Now, you won't be able to see this, but again, download the report. You see um, two sides of the page. On this side, you know, the circles are almost colored. That's the number of managers and leaders who say, my company is inclusive when it comes to X, social mobility, age, ethnicity. Social mobility happens to be there. 83% say, of course we're inclusive when it comes to social mobility. But then you say, okay, name me one concrete action you're doing to, to actually do something about this. Ooh, mm, only 26% can name anything. So we call that the say-do gap. It is rife, and we must address it if we are to deal with this problem. So thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Anne. Um, Suzanne, do you want to go next? <laughs> Sure. Um, morning, everyone. As I say, I'm usually relatively on time. <laughs> Today, different story. Um, so, as I said, I work as an associate partner in Aon. Um, maybe I'll give you some stories about what a day in a working week might look like for me. So, I'm both internally facing to help Aon with our diversity and inclusion strategy, but also externally facing. So. I'll give you some examples of maybe some not so good conversations that I've had and some learnings from those. Uh, I was speaking with a client, it's probably about 18 months ago, and they were saying, um, we have a bit of a pay inequity challenge in our business. We're really good at moving people around. So we're quite good at moving people from the traditional parts of the business to some of the new and emerging parts of the business. But we don't adjust their salaries and actually then other people in the role find out, so it might be a woman or it might be a man, it might be anyone else, and say, why is that person getting paid exponentially more than me in my job? Um, can you justify that? Um, and they said, could you help us justify that? Um, and I said, I think you're probably thinking about that question in the wrong way. <laughs> I think actually there's something fundamentally wrong with your pay structures and you need to rethink actually when someone moves how you actually adjust their salaries to make it fair and equitable. So um, another one just actually on the, on the topic of pay because if you'll have seen the EU pay transparency rules came out on the 30th of March. I know we're not in the EU uh, anymore, so, uh, but lots of organizations are thinking about how do you approach this in a global way, because we already have this legislation in North America. So for one of our clients, they were saying, um, 
you know, we want to make sure that everyone is actually paid fairly, so they were doing actually the right thing and equivalently in their job. So let's have a look at things like um, how much gender, how much ethnicity, how much, you know, these different factors actually influence pay. And what we help them to diagnose or understand is actually um, gender had an influence on pay. So we said, look, if you were to close the pay gap, this is how much it would cost you. Um, they did some salary adjustments, great. They managed to close their gender pay gap. At the next pay cycle, the managers said, the women just got a pay rise. So it's only fair actually to implement a pay rise for the men because you know, they're probably expecting it. And they were back at square one. So a lot of the conversations that I'm having are actually to get people to think more about how creating um, inclusion in the workplace is more of a culture as opposed to something tick box that you do each year that's just a regulation. So, and I, I haven't yet actually completed my doctorate. I am about 18 months out and the topic that I'm looking at is around driving a sense of belonging. So don't worry, I'll only give you 30 seconds because otherwise I'll talk to you for the next hour on this topic and you'll all <laughs> hate me for it. But what I'm really interested in is how, you know, we have, we have diversity, which is about our characteristics. We have equity around making it, you know, fair uh, and everyone sort of treated equally in the workforce. And then we also have inclusion, which often is actually the policies or the things that companies do to make an impact in, on the culture. But then we don't measure actually how do people feel about that in the workplace? What actually is the impact on the individual level? What's actually working? And what's interesting is um, the topic I'm focused on is around belonging. And belonging emerged from social psychology. So a lot of the research to date has been looking at how do ethnic minorities feel in schools, in universities? Um, do they feel included? Do they feel like they belong, how does that predict academic performance and also whether they stay. But we haven't done a lot of research in that in um, workplace settings. So it's really ambiguous about how you define, how you measure, how you create belonging. So what I'm actually looking at is how do you put a structure around measuring that? Because lots of organizations will say, we measure it, we ask one question. But actually there's a huge amount of disparity in the research some people ask 12 questions, some people ask three questions. There's no defined model. So that's what I'm focused on. And actually through that work at Aon, we have updated our strategy. We used to say I and D, then we said D, E and I, and now we say D, E, I and B, because we actually we want to measure the impact and quantify. Are the things that we're doing actually having a real impact on a human level on the people in our workforce? Brilliant. Thank you, Suzanne. Fantastic. Um, Ruth. Um, it's a hard act to follow with this term <laughs> at my side, but I'll give it a shot. Um, I, hi, I'm Ruth. Um, I am Assistant Company Secretary at Centric PLC, um, a key member of the Secretariat team, and a lot of the work we do is working with the Board of Directors uh, at Centric PLC to ensure that you know they are acting in the appropriate manner on behalf of the company and our stakeholders, um, and you know we are supporting to drive the strategy of the group forward. Um, in addition to that, we work with our directors at subsidiary levels. We have a range of subsidiaries, <laughs> given our size. Um, again, on that point of just ensuring the governance of the business is appropriate for the business and um, you know, protects 
you know, in effect, what it belongs to our stakeholders, the assets of the organization. In terms of my day-to-day -day life, um, in Centrica and outside of Centrica, I'll talk to that in terms of social mobility. So in addition to my work, um, I'm a faculty member at the Corporate Governance Institute, um, and I teach uh, the module reporting to directors from different parts of the world, um, not only in the UK. And it's interesting because the topic of diversity does come up, and it's interesting to hear it from different perspectives um, across the globe, which I find quite interesting. And I uphold the UK on that point because we are doing a lot to drive the point of social mobility and drive diversity forward. And it's, it makes me proud to talk about it when you're talking to directors from other countries to say, actually, we are, we are good at this. Look at this. <laughs> um, but there's still more work to do, so I acknowledge that. Um, in addition to that, I, um, I am part of the Insights Committee, um, a leadership committee um, of a task force called TIDE. Cathy made mention to it earlier. Um, it's a task force that was set up by Ofgem and is backed by Ofgem, looking at diversity and inclusion within the energy industry um, and looking at how we can drive that forward. So a lot of the work um, I do as part of the leadership team at the moment is building together um, this, the framework and the strategy to begin engaging with the leaders of the top energy company to look at how their various organizations, so the like of Centrica, the like of National Grid, can really just drive that agenda forward. And in addition to that, we also look at the notion of social mobility, so what impedes people from entering the energy industry. Um, and that's where the Inside Strategy Committee comes in. Um, and we look at data across the various industry and look at peer-to-peer -peer learning as well and how we can utilize that to support each other to drive this agenda forward. Um, so those are the things I'm involved in. And then at Centrica, we are very big on um, diversity and social mobility. We report on it in our annual report and account. To be honest, I think what we put in our annual report and account doesn't really quantify the good work that we are doing. And I'm hoping that as we begin talking that I'll, I'll allude to some of these. But yeah, that's, yeah. that's a bit about me. Fantastic. So I think it's really good to hear that companies are really thinking about this across the board. So we've got three great examples of well, professional organisations and uh, companies who are really thinking about this kind of stuff and, uh, and doing something about it. But what I'd be quite keen to understand is what the, the actual tangible benefits are of having a, a socially diverse workforce. And we'll come on to boards a little bit later because that's what we're here for is to talk about boards. But just... Going back to what you were just saying there about, you know, making sure that we measure uh, something that Suzanne mentioned uh, and understand social diversity within the workforce. But what are the tangible benefits? And maybe if I could start with Anne again, but I won't always go around in this way. <laughs> so I will mix it all up a bit. So um, uh, the, the primary benefits are business benefits. Um, and you, you can sum those up in, in three different dimensions. And they're all, of course, interrelated. But um, the first is that you will, you will create if you have a truly inclusive workforce, because what Suzanne said is absolutely correct, just tick box diversity doesn't work, you have to create a sense of belonging, um, but you will get higher employee engagement. And when you get higher employee engagement, you get higher job satisfaction, and when you get higher job satisfaction, you get better business results. This is, this is true in all businesses, but it's very, uh, very much true in customer-facing businesses where you have customer service representatives or, um, or engineers going into homes or, or uh, salespeople on phones or whatever it is, they're going to serve, or in retail, they're going to serve their customers better. And there's been quite a lot of work 
done to demonstrate that on average, if you have a diverse um, and inclusive workforce, you'll get about a five percentage point boost in your engagement. Um, now, the second uh, contribution is you're more innovative. Mm -hmm. And again, there are studies that show that when, when you have more diverse um, inputs and uh, opinions in teens, they make better decisions um, than if you don't have diverse teens. And of course, um, innovation and better decisions are again um, key ingredients of better business results. And so the net output of all of that, and you know, there's a lot of statistics on this, is you get better financial results. Um, so there is a huge business benefit to doing this. And then I think the other important thing to mention um, is it, that it, it, diversity benefits everybody, not just the people with the protected characteristics. It also benefits um, white men, okay? Just, just for information, because um, it allows them to be, break out of what maybe is a stereotype role for them. Um, you know, they want to be better parents, maybe they want to cry, you know, show emotions, <laughs> things that, that they might not be um, um, schooled or, you know, socially groomed to do. Um, so I think it's extremely important to say that it does benefit everybody. So those are just some of the some of the benefits. And I want to point out, if you don't do this, there are huge risks. Mm -hmm. And you, you will have seen events in the media this week with the CBI. That's a great example of the kind of risks that can happen in culture when you don't have um, a diverse and, in particular, socially diverse um, people. Um, in your in your in your organisation. Brilliant, thanks, Anne. Um, so I want to just um, go back slightly to um, to a point that sort of Suzanne made about uh, sort of measurement, and also going back to something that Cathy mentioned about sort of eighty four percent of uh, of boards not really looking at, at what's going on at, at their level. And uh, it's interesting because I think there's lots of things going on. It feels to me like there's lots of things going on across the workplace. But perhaps if you sort of pinpoint what's going on at the top. Um, it's, it's sort of maybe a different story, you know, a little bit of maybe of uh, uh, do as I do, was it do as I say, not do as I do. Um, so I was just going to ask Ruth, because um, I know we touched on this and we talked about it, how social mobility at board level could be better measured? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, and I think organisations have to look at it from a dynamic perspective as well, because it's quite a complex topic mm. um, in its own right. But I think if you're measuring diversity um, at board level, it's important to look at it from a range of scopes. So, for example, thinking about the recruitment process of boards, of, of individuals onto boards, you know, how diverse it is, what metrics are you using, are you focused on certain types of individuals with certain characteristics or are you expanding the breadth of, you know, the types of people you are looking at. I think it's important at this point to note that the skill set is important. You want to bring people on board that know what they're doing and know to drive the strategy forward for your company. But outside of that, you should also be ensuring that, you know, you're looking at the background of these individuals. How did they get to where they are? And something I'm really proud of is the fact that at Centrica, we have a CEO who talks very openly.
openly about this, the fact that, you know, he grew up in a council estate um, and what life was like for him growing up, even presently his family life, he's very open about it. So I think those are the things organisations need to look at when thinking about individuals to appoint the board. In addition to that, there are a range of metrics out there as well that they can use, um, looking at the social network of the individuals as well that join the board. You know, is it just catered to just Oxbridge people in their network? There's nothing wrong with that. That is brilliant in its own right. But, you know, talk to the individuals, understand what their mindset is, understand their network. And I think those things are quite important to really ensure that at that top, top level, the board level, you know, you're you're creating a pipeline for the right types of people, the broad types of people, individuals with a broad range of experience, to sit on the board, not just a subset of people. Excellent, thank you. And um, sorry, just going a little, little bit off, but uh, something I'd like to, uh, uh, Suzanne, to talk about is, because uh, we had this conversation uh, and we were trying to sort of work out what the best analogy was, um, but it's something that I only came across sort of quite recently, was, was the difference between equality and equity. Uh, and there is a difference, so if you didn't, didn't know, um, and I'm rubbish at explaining it. I came up with some ridiculous thing about if you get given a laptop, <laughs> but you're blind or something crazy like that. I'm sure Suzanne can explain it a lot better than me in terms of, of, of what is that difference between equality and equity, because everybody talks about equality, but actually equity goes one step further, right? Yeah, exactly. I think there's a definition for these, but I think that's actually quite unmemorable to actually know exactly what the, the definition is, but actually knowing what it means in a practical sense. And the way I think about it is equality is like a broad mission statement that when you're bringing people into the workforce, you want everyone to have an equal and fair uh, and same opportunity to get or, you know, that job. And similarly, internally, if we have job vacancies and we're looking for people to come and apply to that, we have sort of an equal opportunity for people to apply. And what we know quite often happens is that we as people are fundamentally a bit biased. So we will make not always the best decisions about who might be best fit for the job. We'll make assumptions around people. So if it's a manual job or if it's a caring job, it's hard to sometimes disassociate a gender with those jobs. And the equity piece kind of goes one step further. So I think about it as almost the diagnosis or the action. So you're almost looking at, okay, based on people's traits, to what extent is that influencing the types of decisions that we're making? So if I, I've talked a bit about pay because that's actually quite topical at the moment, but we can actually hone in on um, to what extent does gender influence pay, to what extent does socioeconomic status influence pay. I think one of the challenges is that we often lack some of the data to actually fundamentally quantify some of those things. So we don't know to what extent is our pay or enumeration actually biased, or to what extent is our hiring process biased? If you were to think of your own company and I asked you, do you know how much of your diverse talent falls out or falls off during the application process, would you be able to tell me? I'm not asking for you to <laughs> raise your hands, but these type of things, actually be able to quantify um, certain characteristics and whether that's enabling or inhibiting, creating a level playing field. And that's why as well, we also get more thoughtful around if there's certain things that actually inhibit someone from having an equal opportunity. 
So in the workplace, we'll have sort of sometimes women acceleration programs because if they come back from maternity leave, they have missed an opportunity to be part of projects, develop their skills. You know, they may or may not have as much confidence coming back. So we have programs that actually fundamentally say, we recognize that this person has had a year gap and actually to close the gap, we'll run a program to actually create a level playing field. So now they have as much of an opportunity or when we're doing grad or early stage talent selection, quite often businesses will think about, let's run an information session around how an assessment center works, how to dress for it, how to speak, how to answer the questions because there's a fundamental difference between how some schools will prepare the students for an assessment centre versus others. And we don't want to create an unequal or unfair situation that by where or what school someone went to, they have a better chance of securing this as opposed to someone who might be from, you know, a public school. I think actually you called them the opposite way here. In Ireland we call them <laughs> the, the opposite from what you call them here, but you know, uh, a school where you're not paying fees. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I guess have a think about as well which types of programs that you run to create um, equity within the workplace and also can you or can you not quantify how some demographic characteristics are impacting how you make decisions around people right now. And if you're not, one of the best ways to start is to think about that with pay. Okay, so Ruth and Anne look like they're chomping at the yeah. bit to say something, <laughs> chomping or chomping. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, so I don't get any more stares, I'm going to offer this up first of all to Anne, and then Ruth, if you'd like to make a few so comments So I just well. wanna um, build on what Suzanne said, in a re because you know, Embrace Equity was the International Women's Day thing, right? And I know that for a lot of people, they were, oh, wait a minute, I've always said equality, now I have to do equity. Oh, my God, I got a headache. Kind of like what Steve was saying, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the difference is. So I'm going to share something that really worked for me. So you all know the golden rule, right? The golden rule. Do unto others as you would like them to do unto you, right? So treat others as you yourself would like to be treated. That's equality. Um, I'm going to project my values onto you and treat you like I want. Equity goes beyond that to the platinum rule. Do unto others as they would like to be done unto. In other words, treat others as they would like to be treated. And that means you don't project your values, your biases, your assumptions onto them. You actually take the time, the effort, and you have the curiosity to understand the difference. And I think that is a really easy and practical um, uh, way of remembering it on an individual level. Um, I, just to build on the amazing things they've just said, I was going to talk to this from my personal experience of this, actually. So I grew up in a working class family. Um, I was born in Nigeria, but moved to the UK when I was about 10, 11. Um, my mom worked about two, three jobs to keep a roof over our head and to feed us. Um, I was the first person in my family to work in the corporate world. So I was going in blind. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to wear. That was a very big point. Um, but with equity, it was having people guide me and support me through that journey as I sort of began my journey into the corporate world because I didn't have a clue what to expect. But, you know, having people and having organizations that took the time to invest in me, um, that is 
what has made the person you'll see and standing here or sitting here today, it's equity. And I think if we all take a step back, and like you said, rather than putting our views and imposing it, take a step back and think of things from another person's perspective, I think society will do really well. <laughs> Fantastic, thank you. Right, I'm going to be a bit naughty now. I'm going to put it from, going to just touch on how this might look from another side of things but it sort of uh, links in very nicely with um, Suzanne's comment about public and private schools by the way you've got it right we've got it wrong I don't get why it's called public schools because I always thought public school would be where the, all the public could go so yeah so I think the Irish are right just for the record it's the same in the US public yeah. schools are state schools exactly that's what I always thought so anyway it's it's uh, I don't know why we we, we switched it around but uh, uh, very typically British <laughs> so uh, um, so but but my point I suppose on this is if you've if if you've done the hard yards so you know you've gone to school your parents have spent a lot of money on you going to school you've worked hard you've got all your qualifications you know you've you've been you know, really working hard while maybe you could argue other people haven't been working so hard. I mean, it's difficult to get my kids to work hard and they go to comprehensive school and, you know, kind of, you know, th 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 my, my concern sometimes, or one of the arguments, I guess, is, is it fair to just kind of like give people fast tracks or, or sort of extra support when they haven't actually done the hard yards or, or their parents haven't paid for them to go to a, a, a big school, you know, because it's a bit exasperating, really, because potentially parents could say, well, what's the point? I might as well just put my kids through comprehensive school. It doesn't really matter about their education because when they get into a company, they'll just be fast-tracked to the top. So, so I'm just kind of putting it out there and, and, and sorry. <laughs> but uh, is, it, is that fair, uh, you know, to, to have this kind of conversation about, um, you know, social mobility where actually, you know, it might not be fair on the people that, that paid for their educations? Yeah, I think. Um, <laughs> you can all have a conversation about this as well. It's not just me. Not just yeah, I think Susanna. you know. I I asked um, my manager about three or four weeks ago. It's like, how do you actually feel about this? Because you know, it's in his targets and his remunerations tied to how he's you know, uh, his bonus in terms of how he creates diversity. So how, how do you feel about it? Because, um, you know, he has to be a big advocate. And I think the thing is that we, what he said is, I don't feel threatened by it at all, as long as we also consider the merit of someone. So what is unfair is to just make a decision based on someone's circumstances so we have it we have a um, you know we have a target so let's make the decision just based on certain characteristics about someone but the right level of merit needs to be balanced because otherwise that's where it creates feelings of you know not belonging <laughs> exclusion um, and some level of anger as well um, so yeah for and and <laughs> linking it back actually to the pay transparency part of that is about actually showing how very clearly you get promoted, you get more money, and actually that should be, <laughs> uh, I suppose, positively looked on by um, men as well if they're feeling excluded from um, the workplace because a lot of the initiatives are around women, ethnic minorities, lower socioeconomic status, because actually that again will create the level playing fields that it has to be fair and based on merit in addition to, you know, 
uh, are they right for the role and are they going to deliver? Okay. Good answer. <laughs> Ruth, yeah, yeah, please, please do. I think you've, you've said it quite well. It's about creating an equal sort of level playing field for everybody. And I agree, I agree it should be on merit. Um, and what I would do if someone said that to me, first of all, is I would empathise with them. I'd listen and take on what they've said because they do have a valid point. If I put all this money in and sent my kids to private school, you know, I would... Uh, you know, I can understand their perspective, but it's about creating a level playing field. Um, there are people from lower social uh, economic background who want to get to the top, who are fine with their backgrounds and where they're coming from. They just want to be given a fair shot to make their mark in this world. That is what it's about. It's creating that opportunity for everybody. And unfortunately, we live in a society and a world that isn't fair, and we all acknowledge that. And I'm not sure we'll, I don't even know if we'll ever get to that place as a society of complete equity, um, but it's about doing what we can to make the world a better place, giving people a shot, especially where there are people who have shown an enthusiasm and a willingness to want to learn, to want to grow, to want to grow forward. It benefits all of us for people who show that passion to be given a fair chance, and that's what it's all about. Um, merit, um, leveling the, um, creating an equal playing field. I've worked with a lot of guys from Oxford and Cambridge, and I see how, and private schools as well, and I see how they've been prepared for certain places that I haven't. But I've had to work and learn and being given opportunities to embark on programs at the right time. I, I, was, I was part of um, a leadership, step-up leadership program at Centrica. That gave me the equipment I need and the tools I need to take that next step into my career. Those levelers help people to sort of have a to, to come at things from an equal level playing field. Because if not, we'll have a situation. I don't know if you've seen that YouTube video where they get all the kids standing <laughs> on the route. I don't know if it's kids or adults, can't recall, standing um, in front of the racing line, and some people are told to start <laughs> and run off, and then the others follow up. That's what it's like for people from lower socioeconomic background. It's just creating that front for them to, you know, also have a step upwards. And then it's up to them to prove. I'm a big, big, big fan of, you know, merit-based. Let people show. Let them do the work. You don't just put people in positions. Because when you do that, you create havoc. <laughs> you create situations where businesses go bust because they have people on there who don't know what they're doing. Um, oh, I'm going to be controversial. <laughs> um, so we do not have a level playing field. It's not a level playing field, and all the facts just prove that, and I'll give you some of them. Um, I'll, I'll speak about gender, but I can also speak about elements of intersectionality. So uh, women have been going to university, cut it, cut it short, they get better grades, and so most companies, and I bet Centrica and Aon are among them, um, higher at the bottom, 50% men, 50% women. Bottom quartile, they're hiring equally, they're paid equally, rah-rah. Let's get to the next 25%. Ooh, suddenly, it ain't 50-50 anymore. It's maybe 65% men and 35% women. And oh, the men are paid because they're more senior, more. Now I'm in that third quartile and maybe it's 70-30. 70% men, 30% women, and then I get to the top and it could be 75-25, could be 80-20. That's what happens. That is not a level playing field. Those women at the bottom were no less talented than those men. They just didn't get promoted, and the men did. So there isn't a level playing field. 
And those are the facts. And if you are a black woman in America, corporate America, maybe 17% of the entry-level people in America are black women in corporate positions. The top quartile, it drops to 3%. You're a white man in America, 35% at entry level are in those corporate positions. Top, 70%. So it is not a level playing field. And anybody who thinks it is, is not looking at the data. So I completely agree, and I think what Ruth is saying is you gotta level up, okay? And so you have to actually just promote proportionally. And I completely endorse what Ruth was saying. I also endorse what Suzanne was saying about you know, the measurement and about looking at, of course, the qualifications. Um, but I'm going to say the exact opposite of what Ruth said. The biggest cause of corporate failure, and we saw it again, actually not once, but twice this week, is groupthink. When you do not have diversity at your board table and you have everybody, an elite public school person, you make decisions that lead to reputational implosion. And I think that was a driving factor in both the government resignation we saw this week. By the way, 65% of the cabinet went to public school and 45% went to Oxbridge. And equally, at the implosion of the CBI. It is too many public school people at the top, not enough genuine diversity. And Airmic did a study, it's an old study, but 12 trillion of assets, things like Enron, BP, biggest cause of implosion, groupthink. Different thank you, Anne. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, thank you to all of you for your, for your comments on that one. And uh, I'm glad you didn't eat me alive for, my, <laughs> for throwing in a bit of a bomb. Um, so I'm, gonna, I'm just kind of aware of time and, uh, and it's, it's cracking on. And I want to move on to the company secretary because there are a lot of company secretaries in the room. Um, so I'd like, and I'm going to give this one to Ruth to start off with, but again, please do chip in. Um, about really kind of understanding what the role the company secretary plays or can play in removing barriers, uh, creating a, a more socially diverse workforce, uh, and easing the path to the top and onto boards. Um, so the, the company secretary plays a, a great role because, first of all, they have the ears of the board. I mean, I think first and foremost, it's important for them to make the board aware of the relevant diversity metrics and just social mobility initiatives that they should be aware of. Um, they are very close to the data, so a lot of the times, you know, the company secretary gets to see things, um, and it's important that they translate that information of what they're seeing back to the board um, and keep them abreast of it. And then looking at the whole notion of, you know, recruitment at board level, just ensuring working with the chairman to ensure that, you know, the candidate pool is quite diverse. Um, ensure that you're not bringing the same type of people back on the board. Um, they can also help promote initiatives um, within the business. Um, ensure they are the right they are right the right policies in the business um, that promote the diversity um, of, of you know the, the people in the organisation and as well as the customer base. So it's quite a it's quite a big role, and some some part of it is. is not a star-like role in the sense that they are working beneath the scenes with the various stakeholders to ensure that there are the right policies in place, um, you know, the right people on the board. Um, they are aware of relevant legislation, for example, you know, the Parker Review, for example, having the board think about what that means for them going forward and really just being that um, 
voice that talks to the point of diversity and keeps that at the forefront of the board's mind. Fantastic. Suzanne, have you got anything to add to that? Yeah, um, maybe I'll share, like in terms of at Aon, we, we've, we now have changed how we actually remunerate as well, the board. So one of the questions I'd ask you is how does the remuneration work right now? Because we have ESG targets built in to our board's remuneration. So I'd be saying, is that there right now? To what extent does diversity and inclusion feature in that? And one of the ways that we've actually made, I suppose, the board as well understand more around this topic is we've also introduced um, well-being into our business because what I have found actually is when you have initiatives around diversity, there's always going to be someone who feels left out, particularly with intersectionality because you might have a Muslim woman, but actually we're just doing an initiative for women at the moment. Everyone can actually relate to well-being. Everyone wants to look after their mental health. They want to feel well. They want to have a sustainable life. You know, they want to <laughs> thrive. And actually one of the things that we're doing to build a business case around diversity is to start to link up all of the metrics in our business. So traditionally, you'll have things tracked around, you know, where you have diversity at senior levels. But actually, we're going to use well-being as kind of the underpinning tool to see how is that enabling diversity? How is that linking to business growth? How is that enhancing or inhibiting the experience of new people joining our business? Do people leave our business because they are feeling burned out? What's the link between well-being and the benefits that we give people? And how might that change and adapt? And the, if you actually listen to our shareholder meetings, like now versus three years ago, the questions that we get from the shareholders are all around diversity and inclusion. They, they actually hold us to account for much different things. And actually having this view and oversight for things like just being in the office actually enable more diversity and does it enable more business growth it actually gives them hard metrics and facts which they really like <laughs> to then present back to the shareholders and also put in our we call it our people uh, report externally each year as well so that's an idea I suppose for you to think about how do you actually help the board to build that business case to look at the impact of diversity within your own business on growth and performance. Just like Anne. I, I think company secretaries play an incredibly important role in this. Um, and I'm going to draw the distinction between what you do and what lawyers do. Um, <laughs> before, and many of you could be lawyers, but your roles are different. Um, before this event, Ruth and I were chatting, and I said, how many are in your team at Centrica? And she said, 10. Um, we're, well, she said, we're a small team. I said, how many? She said, 10. And I, and I said, well, that seems like a lot. She said, not compared to the lawyers. <laughs> um, so, but you know, one of the real issues is when, when, when lawyers take a look at these issues, they look at it from a compliance perspective. They look at it from the legalistic point of view. And that's a really bad way of looking at this because it results in tick box. Um, and you know, again, you see, you see, you, you can see people that have had too much legal advice when they're dealing with a crisis. 
you know, they're not really speaking from a leadership perspective or an inclusion perspective. They're speaking from a legalistic perspective. And you can tell they're reading from a script. And it usually goes very badly, right? Um, and when you get tick box compliance, you don't get the hearts and minds. I think what company secretaries can do is to do what both Suzanne and Ruth have been very eloquently sharing with you, which is look at it from the inclusion perspective, the belonging perspective, the cultural perspective, and hold the board to count from all of those perspectives in ways that the lawyers just will not do. So I think you have an absolutely critical role to play. Brilliant, thank you. That's excellent timing as well, uh, because that's 10 o'clock. So I'm going to give everybody the opportunity to ask questions. I've asked many questions today, so I'm going to throw it over to you guys. If you don't ask any questions, I have got some spares. So don't think this is going to cut these things short, okay? So uh, please, uh, I think Rona's got a roving mic. No? Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to go back to the, to the point about um, if somebody spent a lot of money on private schools, there is an issue that's not really talked about, which is so should, most people want to go up, but then if people are going up, people, some people have to go down. Because if we're looking at the UK, for example, at the top is not really widening. We've, we've got more of like a triangle in lots of these organisations. There's not a, a lot of these high-paying jobs. Like if we even look at the COSEC profession, for example, there will only be, ever be that one group COSEC. So I think that is a very good point, that that's something that's not talked about, this idea that some people who have been historically at the top might have to go down. Or if they don't go down, how do we deal with that um, point if we're going to be more socially inclusive or have more people from less diverse um, parts of society taking on these top jobs or top roles, whether that is the co-sec or the CEO or the chair? Yep, that's a really good point. Um, who, who wants to go first on that? <laughs> I completely agree. At the same time, a lot of the discussions I'm having are with clients who are saying, I can't find enough people for my workforce at the moment. So in maybe established workforces where actually you have people who've been there for 20 or 30 years and haven't moved, there's a question of, well, you know, unless they want to move, they're going to stay there. But there's a lot of businesses that are currently building and growing, and there's opportunities there. So I think as well, we have to be wise and think ourselves, where is there more opportunity for me to move? Um, and sometimes that means moving business and thinking about some of the new <laughs> uh, emerging sectors. I was watching the news last night and they were talking about, um, you know, in the rust, is it the rust belt in, <laughs> in Central yeah. uh, America? Like they're building all of these factories now to build is it batteries for electric cars. And like they're going to have to find all the people for that. So I think we... In schools as well, we have to be wise to educate and make sure people are going into probably jobs and areas where there are fundamentally more opportunities. Actually, um, so it's interesting because you and I spoke about this, didn't we, Anne, about this kind of, uh, and I think this is a sort of part of the question you're asking, is, is that kind of, you know, entitlement and self-preservation, I think we called it when we were spoke, speaking, you know, uh, at the top, you know, so people are saying, well, I'm here now and I'm staying here. You know, one of the things I, I was, am always amazed is that boards don't have younger people on the boards because a lot of the time it reflects the customer base, especially if you're a tech company, but you still get old people like me uh, on boards at tech companies. And I just don't understand that. But it's because a lot of the time, um, and it's not just tech companies, but other companies, people have worked their way up. 
And so they feel that sense of entitlement. That's where they've got to. So, so Anne, I was just maybe um, you'd like to comment on that. You know, is that self-preservation thing? It, it is very um, prevalent at CMI. We, as part of the Everyone Economy, we found that um, actually 33% of men think gender equality has gone too far, and 62% of um, male managers felt it was absolutely fine to have all male leadership teams. Now, if you contrast that with the data, we've been doing gender pay gap reporting for six years. We haven't closed it. I hate to tell you this. We haven't closed it. It's the same as it was six years ago. Um, so the data, again, doesn't match the perception, doesn't match the reality. Now, there are ways of dealing with this. Um, uh, the first FTSE chief exec to achieve 50-50 gender balance and then move on to disability, socioeconomic diversity, and others was Unilever. Um, I wrote a book on this, and I, I know Paul Pullman. I worked with him at P&G. My background, by the way, is corporate before I did this role. And um, I love what he said on this. He did set everybody's targets. And then he said, you know, I kind of look at it like I do health and safety at the factory. If you're on my watch and you're running my factories and people die on your watch, I fire you. And he basically said, I apply the same lens here. I've got these targets. I know it's going to build my business. And I expect all of my senior leadership team to achieve these targets. Um, and if they don't want to achieve the targets, they can leave. And he actually got rid of the people that, that blocked. Now, too many organizations aren't bold enough to do that. But I really think that we do need to be bolder because I mean, Suzanne's right. The economy is changing. Skills are changing. There's a huge skill shortage in this country. I'll use engineering. I sit on the Engineering Council board. We're missing a half a million engineers. 12% of the engineering community in the UK is female, and it's been that way for a decade. So we have got to actually make some change at the top of organizations to make some progress. And it is really kind of that simple. Excellent. And Bruce? Please remind me your name. Marcia. Sorry? Marcia. Marcia. That's a brilliant question. Um, and yes, there are not many of those roles at the top. You're absolutely right. Um, but I think it's important to create the talent pool or widen the talent pool. So when those roles become available, and it may be that you have to move organisations to get to the top. That, that is true and that needs to be considered. But I think the talent pool needs to be widened. And that's why, for me, creating the opportunities for people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds to level up, to get to that level playing field. So when the position arrives, you know, when, when, when it becomes vacant, um, there is a wider talent pool of people that can, you know, equally compete for that role, equally show that they have the skill sets, um, showcase their talent to fill up that role. Now, I can't promise <laughs> that it will always be somebody with a different background um, from you know the traditional Oxbridge person who will get that role but at least they are given a shot and I think that is what society is crying out for right now is give us a shot at it I hope that answers your question yeah. one director basically said not a director he was like a legal counsel he basically said one way to close the pay gap is why not recruit more men in like the lower position jobs that would also get rid of the pay gap. And that's, yeah, that, that was one of his um, points. Yeah. And so that's why I wanted to throw it back about this whole idea about, um, will some people need to go down?
basically, or his, like basically, I guess is the group he's looking at is the white, he's a white man saying this. As a white man, well, some people need to take on those roles because that also achieves um, the disparity as well. If we're looking at it from a data, and it goes to your point about taking a legal, legalistic approach to, to these matters. So that's why I wanted to see what people who are maybe experts and look at it all the time think as well. That might solve the pay yeah. gap at the very lower <laughs> yeah. level, but it's not going to solve it. the fundamental yeah. pay gap at the, at the higher at the level. level. And I would, yeah. I'd say just one quick thing to add. Um, one thing that I've seen probably change with how you know, the talent pool is being created is probably traditionally in the past we've had a lot of focus on things like competencies and you need to have the exact set of like experience. But jobs are evolving so much that actually it's difficult to have the exact set of competence for a particular job because skills are, well, evolving. And one of the things I've seen organizations do well is to actually skills profile or skills map their entire business and take into account what are the emerging skills and what are the declining skills and actually look at how much overlap is there between different roles in the business. So traditionally, we've recruited always from this part of the business into this role. But actually now you can see much more easily, where could the legal person go? You know, where can HR go so that they can move one step up? And it means that actually there's wider opportunities for them. So an evolution of how, I guess, you build talent pools as well. Okay, brilliant. I think we're going to have time for one very quick question and one very quick answer, if that's okay with everybody. Um, just time is not on our side, but it's been brilliant. And I hope you don't mind if we take one more question. Thank you. Um, I just, go, I mean, I think that a lot of our internal glass ceilings exist before we even lose, leave school. And that um, uh, children who have a, a sort of a, a better educational experience leave school with um, greater aspiration and greater confidence that they will make it in the world than other kids. And I just wondered, I know you talked about, um, uh, Suzanne, you talked about having preparation for um, assessment centres and things like that. But I just wonder what your view of um, sort of sort of even starting earlier than that and interventions in schools um, and there's a, whether there's a role for that for business. Um, because it's, it's not just about people making it to the top of that triangle. It's actually about people getting to wherever their potential is, isn't it? Which could, could be at any level within, within, that, within that triangle. But if we don't get the best people to, to their full potential, then we're, we're all missing a trick, really, aren't we? Um, who wants to go first on this? <laughs> I mean, I can answer, but I'll give you a two-minute answer. Yep, okay. two minutes, yep, two minutes, please. Um, for me, we, we look at future potential, and there are some three behaviours that actually are make you future-proof. Um, and that means that someone who can, you know, apply, apply problem-solving skills, someone who's better at kind of learning new information, someone who's actually um, better at proactively self-developing, and those three things are learnability, curiosity, and agility. So we don't need, I, I think we don't actually need to make sure that people know how to perfectly type in schools, but actually we should make them curious beings who want to learn mm -hmm. and ask questions because 
what I think businesses have done well is that they start to then hire people for potential as opposed to things like self-confidence. Actually, if you look at what predicts often hiring at an interview, <laughs> the personality trait that predicts it <laughs> without a doubt is confidence um, in yourself. So actually, if you have a range of activities where someone, you can measure what's inside someone and their innate potential to learn and grow and develop and actually weight that appropriately, in addition to teaching that in school, actually, I think that is sufficient to levelling the playing field. Fantastic. Ruth, final yes. comments? Yes, <laughs> and I'll try and keep it short. Um, I definitely think there's scope and room for access um, projects, or that's what I'd like to call, I, I tend to call it. I think it's important for organisations and us as a society to start a grassroots level. Um, how do you know what is available to you if you don't see it? And I think that's one of the problems or one of the things we find with um, children from sort of lower social economic backgrounds. They don't even know what is available to them. I mean, I didn't know of the role of a company secretary at all because no one in my family works in the corporate world. And when I mentioned it to certain people, they're like, oh, yes, I know what that is. I grew up in Surrey, so um, <laughs> forgive me. So you're like, I know what that is. I sit on the board. So you hear a lot of that. But I didn't know what it was. Um, and I think there's scope for... for organizations to go in and, and, you know, make it known what is available to those young people. And I think building on what you said, developing those key characteristics in young people, and I think everyone can do this to an extent. You know, if your life brings somebody across to you from a different background, mentor them. It's as simple as that. Little things like showing somebody what a CV should look like. Um, and I say this because in my personal experience, I've come across kids from sort of East London who just who don't know what a CV is or what it should look like. And they are competing with kids that have gone to, you know, great schools that have been prepped from pretty young. Now, these kids don't have a chance in the workplace. And what then happens is it turns into a spiral because they don't think, oh, society hates me, there isn't room for me, and it just becomes one spiral after another. So I think, you know, for organisations... There's a lot of work to be done at that grassroots level, and I'm thankful that Centrica does a lot of work in that. We have something called an access project where we bring people from, we partner with schools in sort of really low socioeconomic backgrounds. We get them in. We talk to the kids about our experience. So I'll talk about, you know, my journey, how I got to where I am. Our GC would do the same as well. And I think the more organisations do that, I think you, you'll start to sort of open their eyes to what is available. And I think the individuals who want to go up to the top will then begin to develop those skill sets that they need to get to the top. Um, so I would just build on that. I think if you're in a company, what can you do? Because you want some practical things you can do. There's lots you can do. <coughs> and um, the, if, if, if they're not going to do it in the schools, you have to go out and do it yourself. So what you have to do is uh, widen your recruiting pool. Don't just go to the Russell Group universities. Go deliberately to other universities that are outside of that. Um, go to places in the UK that have many more um, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and find the talent in those places. Do CV blind recruiting because it does work to foster more inclusion and diverse talent. And, um, and you can also um, do reverse mentoring programs. I think those are great things as well. Um, and the other thing is, you know, professional bodies like CMI, we offer people CV help, learning diagnostic help. We cater to the people that Suzanne was talking about that want to develop themselves 
and I think considering um, putting, you know, giving people those opportunities to develop themselves through their own mechanisms is very, very important. So a lot of this is within your gift to change how you do things, and that is really what can make the difference. And that's a wrap. Some very interesting points raised, but we'd love to hear what you think. If you want to join the conversation and take part in future Ahead events, I've left a link in the description about how you can do this. Don't forget, you can also subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on. That way, you won't miss an upload. Bye for now.